0: So if you have your Bible, Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to be again today as we continue this series on foundations. Today we're talking about the foundation of gender. So I want to say something to start off uh, that I, I said last week that's so important for all of the things that we're talking about. Last week I said that Genesis 1 and 2 is the blueprint for how God designed life to work. We've been working with some architects here at the church to try to figure out some ways that maybe we can do things differently and fit some more people in the building. And one of the things that we have is these architectural drawings, these blueprints of the way that things would work for us to be able to do that. We've talked about removing this wall back here behind us. And there are some of us who would like to just get a sledgehammer and a sawzall and go after that and figure that we could probably make a pretty good go at it. But there are those in authority who say, no, because if we let you do that, then we have to let any hack a job uh, do anything that they want on their own. And so it's like somebody needs to oversee it and make sure that it's actually safe. We started talking about taking this wall out and realized that there are some like um, structural capacities that that wall holds. And so if we just knocked that down and all showed up on a Sunday morning, things might get a little interesting, right? We might make the news for a different reason. And so we have these... Blueprints that are there to help us understand how, if we do this, that we can do it properly and do it right and do it safely, do it in a way that would make our church continue to be like a good and productive and safe place. Genesis 1 and 2 is the blueprint for how God designed life to work. It's the only place in any literature in history that we have where life is actually functioning the way that it's supposed to, as you think about it. Genesis 1 and 2 is the design for what is called human flourishing, that God designed the world and people to work in a certain way, and God wants people to flourish. God wants like happiness and enjoyment in life, and he has a specific way that we're to go about that. And so like all of these foundations sermons are about God's blueprint for the way that life is supposed to work, right? So when we talk about God being the foundation of everything a few weeks ago, like there's one God, and he is great, and he is glorious. He's all-powerful, and he's providential. He's also good, and he's gracious, which means that we can trust him. That when I look at his blueprint, I know he's not just uh, trying to have his own way at our expense, but he's actually great enough to have a blueprint, and he's good enough to have a good blueprint for our lives. We talked about God being the creator and the sustainer and the provider for his world. That means he's the ultimate authority in the universe. That means I don't get to bring my blueprint to him and say, but God, look, I got a better blueprint. Like we're trying that with the city of Puyallup, right? I mean, we're going to try hard with the city of Puyallup. Here's a different blueprint, and maybe that will work. But with God, we don't get to bring our own blueprint. He's already given us the perfect blueprint for the way that life is supposed to work, and he's the creator and sustainer, so it's his blueprint. Last week, we talked about how we're made in the image of God, and that's where we get our dignity and our worth and our value, that we're there to reflect God and to represent God. So as we live by God's blueprint, we reflect him well, and we represent him well. So the way this whole thing works is this, is that when we submit to God's authority, when we trust God's design, life works the way that it's supposed to, and human flourishing happens the way that it's supposed to. But, Genesis 3, when we rebel, we go our own way, we follow our own blueprint, we make up our own blueprint, we wipe away the blueprint, guess what? Chaos and confusion always ensue. Whenever people turn away from God and turn toward themselves, there can be no real, true human flourishing. And as Christians, what we believe is we believe in the God of the Bible, we believe in the Christian worldview, and we believe in this blueprint. And we want human flourishing for all people. Like We really desire that all people not just conform to our ideology, not just conform to the things that we think are right and and do it our way, but we really believe that we have an objective blueprint and foundation by which we do life and that God wants what's best for all of us in that. This is going to be vital as we talk about gender. With all of the chaos and confusion, all the anger and angst and frustration on all sides, with all of the even violence in different places, that's happening as a result of this gender identity crisis and this new gender revolution, it is vital and imperative that we start right here. That we don't start with the philosophical argumentation. We don't start with our own political ideologies. That we don't start with a scientific investigation. That we start with scripture because that's where our worldview comes from. And that's what God has for us. Human sexuality and and gender issues is the hot button topic today Especially between people who would consider themselves Christians and non-Christians And my goal today is again to be loving, to be compassionate, to be biblical and to be truthful I don't want to make fun of one side, I don't want to tear anyone down But I just want us to see what God's word has to say Because I believe that human flourishing happens as we follow this word so we're going to start with Scripture this morning, and I want to give you five, five points to start with. There's a lot more than five today. Sorry. I know the game starts at noon, but none of us care. But first, we're going to talk about the biblical foundation for gender identity. I'm going to give you five things related to this that just come straight out of the text of Scripture. I've been thinking for a while about this idea of Genesis 1 and 2 as a blueprint, and you'll know that I would... You'll be happy to know that I I picked up a book on God and transgender issues this week, and I opened it up, and the guy started talking about the Genesis blueprint. It's like, oh, wow, I'm not as dumb as I thought I was. It's always good when, like, somebody who writes books agrees with you. You're like, yes, okay, good. But these first three of the five are things that this writer was pointing out as, like, foundational and imperative and important, and they come right out of Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis 1, 26 tells us that God created humanity in his image says then god said let us make man in our image after our likeness we talked about this at length last week so i won't spend a ton of time here but i want you to see a couple of things that when god created man in his image there is a plan right this isn't arbitrary that there's a definite plan that there's a definite design as god created mankind that word is mankind men and women when God created mankind, there was a definite design to it and there was real intentionality, right? God wasn't just like, well, let's, let's see what happens. I'll just kind of throw it out there and let them define and see how they, what they come up with. That there was real intentionality as God created humanity in his image. Then number two is God created humanity male and female, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image... He, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When we read the Bible, we look at the words of Scripture, we look at the historical context, we look at the theological context, we look at the literary context, all of that stuff to make sure we know what it's saying and we're getting it right. There are two objective categories of gender that Scripture knows. Male, female. Okay? Biologically created male biologically created female those are the two objective categories of sex and gender when i use the term sex throughout the course of this today i'm talking about the personhood and not the act i want to make sure that we're all clear on that it's going to become important in just in just a minute because of things that culture is up to so there's two objective categories now one author said this, and I think it's important to point out, that maleness and femaleness are not artificial categories, okay? These are not artificial categories that someone made up. This is not a cultural construct. This is not patriarchal society that built this long ago, okay? That what it is, male and femaleness, reflect the creative intention of being made in God's image. Again, I'm, just, I'm sharing scripture, Right? And and immediately, because this is such an issue, probably you're hearing different sides of what does male mean and what does female mean and all of those kind of things. We're just looking at what does the text of Scripture say? It says that God created two objective and identifiable categories of sex and gender and that they reflect the intentionality of being made in God's image. Number three, God created male and female for each other. We'll look at Genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 18, and God said every woman's favorite word, and God said it is not good for the man to be alone, come on girls, amen, now I got an air fryer for Christmas, it makes it a lot easier for me to be alone, but I still shouldn't be left alone for any period of time, like my wife will tell you, my girls will tell you, okay, But God looked at all that he had created, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And he looks at man standing there by himself. He's like, oh, not good, right? And he's not talking about morally not good. He's like, functionally, this is not how God intended. That's really important, by the way. When we talk about marriage, we'll talk more about that. But functionally, he says, no, this is not as intended, that there's more to this story. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Then in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it with flesh. The place the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man, and the man sang a song. You see how it's set off in your text right there? That's poetry. He said he wrote a poem, he sang a song, he probably played the guitar, and he said. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, for she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, the man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And all of that tells us us many things, but fundamentally it tells us that male and female were created for each other. Every time I do a wedding... I include these words. I said, I tell the bride and the groom, you are entering into what the Bible describes as the ultimate, the highest of all human relationships. And we joke around. I say, you know, God didn't create it when he looked and he said it's not good for man to be alone. He, he didn't like create a golden retriever, bring the golden retriever, look, man's best friend, you're gonna be okay, right? He didn't create a bunch of buddies to come in and hang out, watch football, eat chicken wings, do things that they shouldn't do, play video games. No, none of that. He created woman because that was the only thing that was right and that was fitting and that was truly good in God's good design because God created male and female for each other. That's God's word and that's the Genesis blueprint. And you're like, that seems pretty straightforward, right? Even if you haven't been in church a long time, just read a few verses, and you're like, it seems like he's saying that like, the Bible's really important, and that the stuff on the screen matches the stuff in the Bible. Like We can agree on that one, right? This isn't a guy making up his own ideas, trying to suppress somebody. This is just what, what God's Word has to say on the subject. Number four is where it really starts to get interesting. Number four says that gender and biological sex are inextricably connected. That means you can't pull them apart. You can't, you can't take one away from the other and have a kind of two separate things. And we're going to talk about a lot about why this is important. Maybe you're looking at it and you're like, those first three made sense, but that one's weird. But the idea that you can bifurcate, that you can take apart gender and biological sex is fundamental to transgender ideology and i'm going to talk about why that's so non-biblical and anti-biblical so i want you to see it and understand it but i want to go to scripture first to make sure that we're clear that this is biblical so in genesis 1 27 it said god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them Then in Genesis chapter 2 Verse 23 The man said This is bone of my bones And flesh of my flesh She shall be called woman Because she was taken out of man There's this movement From male female To man woman All throughout scripture And especially as indicated I believe right here That biological sex And gender Are always one and the same They're always connected They can't be taken apart So as As Bible-believing Christians, what we believe in is something called uh, biological essentialism. Biological essentialism basically means this, that your gender is determined by the objective fact of your biological sex. Now, for most of us, we're like, that seems to make sense. Some of you look confused, so I'll try to put it another way. If you have been present in the room when a child was born, your child was born, usually the doctor will take the child from the womb hold the child up and say huh look down it's a boy there you go that's biological essentialism does that make sense there's something that's called psychological existentialism and that's what's driving our culture which is baby comes out they look at the baby like well I think it looks like a boy but we'll let the baby decide how it feels in a few years and then after that we'll determine it right so biological essentialism, that like your objective sex like determines your gender, is what the Bible affirms, but what our culture is saying is something far different. In fact, one, again, uh, one writer said this, that our culture is saying that your psychology is your sexual identity. Okay, The message that our culture is preaching, that your psychology is your sexual identity, and your body needs to be conformed to that. Does that make sense? sexual reassignment surgeries, hormone therapies, all of those different kinds of things, is that what you think up here about who you are and what your gender is, regardless of what your biological anatomy and your X and Y chromosomes and things like that that are objective say about you, your psychology drives your gender. And you can pull apart your biological sex from your gender, and your biological sex may say one thing, but your gender can be anything you want. Do you see how this leads to a culture of confusion? Because there's then no objectivity, there's no rationality in any way for that. So what our culture is saying is, you can sever your sex from your gender and determine and decide whatever you want. But here's what God says, the fifth point. Your created gender is a good gift from God. And again, as I'm, as I'm preaching this morning, I know that there are many of you out here that I don't know or know where you come from in relation to this area. There are, this will be available online, and who knows who hears it and sees it. I want to make sure that we understand that my desire is a heart of compassion and a heart of love for what God wants for human flourishing. This is not a, pers- a pastor trying to push off an agenda or trying to suppress a people group This is someone who really wants to see human flourishing In the way that God designed people to flourish So I'm, I'm not trying to be argumentative I'm not trying to be dismissive or any of those things And as we'll see as we get further along in the sermon I think that the church has a lot of work to do And how we help And how we're part of the, the solution When we've been such a part of the problem But in the midst of that we lay a biblical foundation And I need us to see Genesis 1 31 That when God God got done creating all of this stuff Including male and female Including man and woman When God created Two objective Biological sexes And those corresponding genders Verse 31 Of Genesis 1 God saw everything that he had made And behold it was very good very good your created gender is a good gift from God I believe that things like gender dysphoria gender incongruence are actual things that people wrestle and people struggle with my concern is when you're not allowed to counsel someone who's working through those things and they come to you for help and you're not allowed to counsel them and say your gender your created gender is a good gift from God because that's bigoted and intolerant and all of those things but what God's word is telling me to tell you is that the person that God created you in his image to be is a good gift from God. We'll talk more about gender roles in a different sermon, but the way that we express gender will look differently. right? Not every woman loves to cook. I know it's shocking, but there are men in this room who are better cooks than some women in this room. I won't name names, okay? And not every guy is like a raging lunatic who loves football and chicken wings, right? That there are differences in people. And sometimes we stereotype men and stereotype women and stereotype the male gender and stereotype the female gender and somebody doesn't fit perfectly into our little cultural stereotype, then we say things about them that we shouldn't say and, and put labels on them that we shouldn't. And that's not okay. Because the way that, that manhood and womanhood is expressed... Can look very different within masculinity and femininity. Okay? Masculinity doesn't mean I, I can use a hammer, because I am bad with hammers. Okay? I'm still a man. I will stand here and proclaim it. I like books, and I'm still a man. Some of you are like, it's questionable. <laughs> but expressing it is something different than saying, oh, I feel this way, and I just, I'm gonna have to change it, right? And why is it so important? Because our feelings are going crazy. And I have to be careful today because there's so many rabbit trails that we could go off on. But when we start letting four-year-olds and older determine their gender exclusive of their parents, like we're undermining the whole process of growing up and pre-adolescence and adolescence and all of those kinds of things. And we're saying to a four or five, six-year-old, you're, good, you're You're smart enough and psychologically competent enough to make decisions that's gonna last for the rest of your entire life. And what we're in fact saying to those people is like, you're better at it than God, right? When someone says like, I, I feel like I'm a, a woman stuck inside a man's body. I believe that there should be like real help. There should be real like... Compassion and care, and we should really walk through those things, that people who are Christians who are certified and working through these things should be able to be brought into the process. But when we say, well, if that's how you feel, then you should just be able to express yourself, we're saying you're actually better at this than God. Like your created gender is a good gift from God. All of those five things, that's the the Christian message on being. Biblical gender Biblical sexuality Much more obviously could be said But that's, that's the foundation When somebody comes to you and says "Like, What does the Bible have to say about gender it Isn't God like totally against Certain people And God is oppressive and Christians are oppressive You can say no God has a blueprint For human flourishing God made the world He's an authority over the world And this is his blueprint And he wants all people to flourish not in a Christian's agenda, but in God's agenda And as I looked at that, I thought, like, like it seems pretty simple It seems pretty straightforward so, so, like, why all the confusion, right? Why is it I can't even speak English Because I don't know which pronouns I'm supposed to use Why is it that, like, I have to be concerned When my daughter's in swimming class and comes home and says Like, there might be a, a boy in the girl's locker room And I have to investigate that whole process There wasn't, by the way, so we're all good there but why do I have to even think about those things, right? Why is it that, that men are winning women's gold medals? Over and over and over, we see a culture of confusion, and, and why is that? And so I wanted to start with Scripture so we understand the biblical foundation, but I do think for us as Christians, or even people who are exploring this idea, if that's you, I want us to have like a, 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 at least a good idea of like how did we get here? You ever, like, read the news and think, wait, they're going to let teenage boys use girls' bathrooms if they say they're a girl? That doesn't seem right. How did we get here? Am I the only person that ever f- that feels that way? I didn't go to high school too long ago, okay? And if I had walked into a girls' bathroom, problems, right? You're like, how did we get here? And I want to share some some of the things and some of the ways that that have affected that because it's important for us to know that like we're not crazy and thinking oh my goodness how did we get here, and like there are factors at work. So let's talk then about the cultural confusion on gender identity. And the first thing you have to understand when we talk about that cultural confusion is that there's this like fertile soil. Of post-Christian culture When sociologists talk about a post-Christian culture It means that up until really Like some people say the 1990s or even the early 2000s That America especially and most of the first world Would have been considered a a Christian culture And what that meant was Is that even if you didn't go to church Or you didn't spend a lot of time like reading your Bible Most people would identify themselves as Christians And that was seen as a positive thing and, and Christian morality still kind of ruled the day. and, and those, That was a Christian culture. In the last 20 years or so, we have moved far from that very quickly into what people, it's actually been labeled now, a post-Christian culture where when they do the religious surveys, people are more likely than not to just say, I'm a nun and not the Catholic kind, right? I'm a nun religion. They list all the religions or N-O-N-E and people are like, no, nope, there, and so post-Christian culture is run by several things. One of them is relativism, right? Instead of objectivity, everything is relative. You know the phrase, you do you? That's, that's relativism, right? Speak your truth. Well, wait a minute. I thought there was one truth. No, no, no. Your truth is your truth. For you, my truth... It's called relativism, and so in a post-Christian culture, relative become, relativism becomes a, a really cool thing because if Roger believes the truth that's different than my truth, and if JC believes a different truth than my truth, and Jerry has a different truth than my truth, Roger can't tell me I'm wrong, and I can't tell JC he's wrong, and nobody can tell Jerry he's wrong, and we're all good. So relativism has, has overtaken objectivity to say, hey, all truth is the same, and that's a seedbed. Right? Add to that this rugged individualism, right? And autonomy, the search for autonomy, where I am my own God and I am my own boss and I am the most important thing in my life. And who are you to tell me what to do? And those things all get put into the pot together. There's the erosion of authority. And a lot of religious authority, we've done it to ourselves because of sex scandals and abuse and different things like that. That people look at the, the church, they used to look at the church, and at least I could like tell people, I'm studying to be a pastor. And people would be like, oh, that's really cool. Now it's like, I'm a pastor. Oh, okay. There's been an erosion of authority in a, a variety of different fields, right? And then just the idea of the abandonment of like rationality. Again, another way that they talk about it is a post-truth culture. Where people are like, there might be truth, but my feelings are more important. And, and, and so this this abandonment of rationality. So all of those things have kind of worked together to create this fertile soil where gender identity and confusion can just grow, 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 grow. The, number two is the abandonment of what we would call traditional sexual ethics. And a lot of these are my words, so if you get mad at anybody, you get mad at me, I didn't read it anywhere, just trying to think through and compile a lot of different things that I did read into something that would be helpful. The abandonment of, of traditional sexual ethics. How many of you remember watching, like, Leave It to Beaver as a kid? Oh, you just told your age, gotcha. Look around. That was a test. I watched it too, and there were reruns on Nick at Night. Remember, remember how in all those old TV shows, they would have a, like a bedroom scene of mom and dad? And what did you see? Oh, separate beds. And all the kids today are like, wait, why? Why? Well, there were important reasons for that, right? You're not going to put two actor, an actor and an actress who are, aren't married to, together into the same bed and then shoot a bedroom scene. There was some level of like a traditional, like sexual ethic and understanding. Like, in other words, there was a line, and, and you didn't cross that line. And and I put traditional and not Christian because even people who didn't label themselves as Christians understood something about like a traditional, like sexual ethic. Then along came something called the sexual revolution of the 1960s, and that line started to creep forward, and started to creep forward, and started to creep forward. Right, And the rules began to change. And what was, okay, what, not, what was not okay soon became okay. There were still a great deal of taboos. But fast forward from the 1960s and the sexual revolution to 2023. Where do you think that line is? Most of the things, for those of you who were alive in the 60s, you and your parents were saying, that is aberrant. It's stuff that the transgender culture right now is saying is normative and you are aberrant, Right? because the abandonment of those traditional ethics just continues to push the line and continue to push the line and continue to push the line till we start to talk about terms like minor attracted individuals you're not a pedophile you just have a a problem and dads we would say if you come near my kid you're gonna have a bigger problem right but what I'm pointing out is that the line continues to move forward and continues to move forward. Why? Because there's, everything's relative, and there's no objectivity, and there's no standard. And so who's to say that the line can't move a little bit further? And if everyone's a victim, and if the, the, the God of the day, by the way, is tolerance and affirmation, then who are you not to tolerate me and not to affirm what I have to say? So the abandonment of traditional sexual ethics continues to move things forward. A third piece of that, and we talked about it already, but is this severing of gender from biological sex. To say that whatever you think, you can be. Why gender fluidity is such a big deal right now is because people are so confused that they can't even wake up in the morning and decide which gender they are. So we have to allow for the fact that they can be one gender in the morning and another gender in the afternoon based on their feelings. And as we've always said here, that, that feelings make a pretty decent sail, but they make a really lousy rudder, right, if you're out sailing. And, and feelings can be a really good thing, but you need the rudder of conviction to make sure those feelings are pushing you in the right direction. But we have a culture with all feelings and no, all sail and no rudder, and so be whatever gender you want to be. And because everything is relative, who am I to tell you that you can't? Because if I tell you you can't do that, then you could tell me I can't do my thing, and I don't like that. So you sever those two things from each other and it continues to build on the gender identity. This fourth one, coping with hurt, abuse, and confusion is something that I find very interesting as one who has teenagers but has also worked with teenagers. We have a friend who has been in camp ministry for like 25 years and we were talking one day about um, just the ways that teenagers through the decades have have coped with different things uh, like hurt and abuse and how people have responded to that. And we talked about how, like, when we were kids in the 80s and the 90s, the big deal was for for teenage girls especially, like, if you were... Suffering with hurt and abuse and things like that. The way that you coped with that, one of the ways was through anorexia and bulimia, right? Eating disorders. That was, when I was a kid, eating disorders were like that, that was the big crisis, and they were talking about eating disorders all the time and counseling and things like that. So a young girl comes in and she says, I've been abused, or I've got this hurt, or I'm confused, and I'm struggling with an eating disorder. In the 80s and 90s, you know what they did? They gave her counseling. And they said, you shouldn't do that, that hurts you, that's not good for you, we need to get you better, we need to take care of you, we need to get you on the right path. When I was in youth ministry in the early 2000s till 2012, anorexia and bulimia weren't really talked about as much. But the new thing was called cutting, where teenagers would cut themselves, not to try to commit suicide, but to get attention, to, um, to cope with hurt and things like that. And so cutting really became a big deal. When a teenage girl or even a teenage young man came in and said, I'm struggling with my gender or I'm struggling with this abuse or I'm, I'm really hurting and I'm cutting myself. Do you know what counselors would say to them? That's wrong. That's bad. You shouldn't do that. We need to stop that. We need to help you. And that was secular counselors, not only Christian counselors. Fast forward to today. My daughter's generation, when a young lady is hurting and maybe has been abused or has had something bad happen to her, had a tough experience in her life, is experiencing confusion. The new order of the day is gender-related. The new coping mechanism isn't an anorexia. And I'm not saying those things don't happen. They certainly do. But the one that we hear about most, and I have a front row seat because of some of the friends and the people in, in school, is they come in and they say, I think I'm a boy. I think I like girls. I think this i need to dress this way and it's a coping mechanism but whereas in the 80s and 90s and 2000s when counselors were willing to sit down and say that's not okay you're hurting yourself that's not good you know what we do now we say you need to embrace that you need to accept that we we need to continue to like push you toward that we need, need to affirm that and it's not helping it's hurting it's destroying like i don't have to preach to you about what sexual reassignment surgery does to somebody Right? And like the the irrevocable damage that that does. Because rather than saying you're hurting and you need help, rather than even being willing to say, like, there's a blueprint for your help, let us show you that. We serve, our culture serves these false gods of tolerance and affirmation above all things. And it's just adding to the culture of crisis. Like, if you're here today and you're hurting, I had this for later, but I'll say it now too. If you're here today and you're hurting, there's been abuse, there's been hurt, pain, confusion, loss and those things, there's a better way. There's a God who loves you, cares about you, made you in his image, sent his son Jesus to die in your place for your sins, so that you can not only have salvation, but you can have healing and wholeness now. Like that is a healing that no gender reassignment is ever gonna do. This is controversial, but I'll say it anyway. You can never really change your gender. If your gender is a good gift from God, someone said you can change the form, but you can't change the formatting, right? You, you can change the hardware, but you can't change the inherent genetic software. You can't really change your gender. If you're here and you're hurting, like we want to be part of the process of helping and not just making it different and making it worse. The fifth thing, and this is where I have to put my own seatbelt on and be careful because this is one of the ones I get really fired up about, but I think one of the things that is just adding to this cultural confusion on gender and, and sexual identity is progressive, and I call them pseudo-churches because I don't believe that God sees them as churches, affirm this whole thing. And I'm not up here now just to be one who rants at other Churches or other institutions But as I've been reading Reading the rationale behind Why would a, a church A religious group affirm these things Why would they hang the flag Why would they do those things What I have found through like reading and research Is like deplorable Okay And I, this is kind of like maybe in jest But it's, re, it's true You have to mutilate God's word Worse than Like SRS surgery to make it say something that would affirm the transgender agenda. And I've read the arguments. I've read the arguments about how homosexuality in first century Rome is a very different thing than it is today. And so that's why Paul was talking about it then and not now. That's not true. Okay? I've read the reader response theory to reading scripture where you read Genesis 1 and you kind of let it say whatever you want like you know God created heaven and God created earth and there was a space in between and the space in between is where like all of the other things exist and one of those other things that exist is like you know um, transgender sexual attraction and you're all looking at me the same way I looked at the text like wait what because I just thought it meant that he created heavens and earth right? But when we start to twist scripture, and this is what churches are doing. You guys, like I'm reading this stuff. I'm not just up here saying it. Like I read one of the more prominent like progressive pseudo-Christian works on this topic and what he does with scripture is just abhorrent. It's terrible. It's taking God's word and making it say something that it was never intended to say. It's called heresy. Ultimately, I think that this agenda this gender identity agenda is not sustainable in the long run i don't see how we as a culture can continue to push that and continue to live into that and it be sustainable because like i said relativism just continues to push the line you probably know that the lgbtq plus etc community is at odds with each other because lg and b are realizing that t actually has a different ideology than what they have and so now they're fighting over the flag that they stole from us right because it's not sustainable because if there's no objectivity then anything goes and so then the last question that we're going to talk about for just a minute i promise is so then how should the church respond if we have the blueprint if god has given us the blueprint and we can see it clearly, and we know it, and we know the foundation for biblical gender identity, but we also know that we live in a culture of mass confusion on gender identity, and it's impacting everything, then what do we do? I'll give you three things, and the first one, I don't know if it'll surprise you or not, but I really believe that the church has to stand against this agenda. The word agenda is important here, okay, because I believe that the agenda is something that is much greater and broader than the population of people who actually, like, ascribe to and live by this, okay? And I'm not gonna get into, like, liberalism and the leftist agenda and those kind of things, but this is an, an agenda. And it's a spiritual battle, church. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle for our religious rights, for our American freedoms, okay? Like I told you a few weeks ago, in Canada... People are being fined and potentially arrested for this message. Like if I preached this in Canada, you're like, what, like a hundred year? No, like this week. If I preached this message in Canada, they could come in and fine me for hate speech. There are instances where things similar to that are happening today in America. It hasn't infiltrated into where they're going to come in and do that now. But I was joking around with Andrew Smith, who's over in the overflow room, where we're joking around this week, like, they, like YouTube could seriously hear this and, and ban this, right? Because it's hate speech, it's bigoted, it's racist, it's intolerant, all those things. And I think that as a church, we have a responsibility because this is about rights and freedoms. It's about the freedom of our church. It's about our families, moms, dads. Like this is about our, our families and our kids. Like And it doesn't matter where they go to school because they are going to face it Sometimes, somewhere And it's about our families It's about human dignity Like this is a spiritual battle for human dignity And I want to say to everybody Regardless of where you're at on this whole thing Like we desire true human dignity And we believe that the only place that humans find true dignity Is when they're understanding and living in the image of God And how God created them So ultimately this is a spiritual battle for the image of God it really is and as christians we may be called to stand collectively against it like i may be called to continue to preach on it with ramifications and things like that but i believe that like we need to understand the agenda and we need to continue to know what it means to stand against that agenda thing number two is this that we've got to stand for truth and grace in our workshop this morning, Lauren read a couple passages. One of them was John 1, 14. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Uh, in verse 14, one of the things that it says about Jesus, actually I will pull it out right here. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus was what? Full of two things. What were they? Grace and truth, Right. And both of those things are so important. And, and as I've talked to different people, you realize that the church swung to truth, and we're going to hold the truth, and we're going to be truthful and everything truth. And we were not very gracious about it. And now progressive churches today are swinging, and we're going to be gracious and love everyone and affirm everyone and accept everyone and care for everyone, and there's just no truth. And we need both truth. The truth is is that this is God's word, and it holds God's design, and it holds God's blueprint. That's the truth. The truth is there's one God, and I'm not him, and he gets to call the shots, and he has called the shots on this issue. But the grace is how I speak to other people about that, how I care for other people with regard to that. And we need both. So the question becomes, and a couple people have asked me this week, so, what do I say to my coworker? What do I say to my neighbor? What do I say to my friend? What do I say to my kids to talk to their friends about? What do, I, what do we say when, when our kids come home and they say, Yeah, dad, they said because our family's Christians and we're homophobes, right? What do we say when they call us bigoted and intolerant and closed minded and all those kind of things? What are the, what do we, how are we supposed to respond? We respond with truth and grace. Here's one of the things that I think is important. I think it's okay for a Christian to say, play by your own rules. Like I say this regularly. Talk to the kids about it. So you're going to be a culture who propagates tolerance and inclusion and affirmation. Play by your own rules, right? If I go into a public school setting, a classroom, something like that, and they're like, Everyone is welcome. All viewpoints are accepted. We tolerate. We affirm. That's great. I have a viewpoint. I have a coherent worldview, and I actually have like a document to back it up and not just my feelings. Tolerate. Be inclusive. I think it's okay. Some of you are shocked, like as well, Christians, we should say that in a gracious way. I'm not saying be mean or angry, but you know what? We can play by the same set of rules and expect that from other people. One of the phrases that we've been teaching the girls, and I tweaked it just a little bit, but one of the things that we've been trying to teach them is this. Because I love you, I can't affirm you. Right? Because I love you, I can't agree with you. So we went the girls, and, and we've kind of said it like, just because I, just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean I don't love you. And when somebody comes, because that actually happened, and someone said, you know, your family must be homophobes. And they weren't even, like, mad or angry or mean or, like, attacking. It was just a friend who assumed that because we were Christians, we hated other people. And we want to teach the girls, and I, I want us to be able to say, like, because I love you, I want more for you. Because I love you, I can't affirm that. We do that with people all the time in different things, don't we? Right? Because I love you, I can't affirm you if you're going to be a 49ers fan today. I can't do it. <laughs> See? See? there you go, same thing, we do it all over the place in culture, I, I think it's a Christian's right to stand graciously and truthfully, to say, because I love you, it would be against my convictions if I affirmed you, because I love you, it would be against like what I believe in my worldview, and what I stand for, but I'll still love you, I'll still care about you, I still want to be your friend, you can still come over to my house, like we can still, whatever, and you got we gotta use discretion on those things, but that's this final point, and we'll close with this. That as a church, we've done a terrible job of standing with hurting people. Like, as a, as a pastor, I've, I've not been very good at this in, in my own heart. Because I get so mad at the agenda. And I get so vitriolic at the agenda. Like, I am a truth and justice person so mad at the agenda and i get so mad at the critics and when somebody comes home and my kids like saying i want to go in there and just give them both barrels but what we realize and from my reading and studying this what i realize is like you know what like there are real hurting people if god created people in his image and they're distorting that image through this those people have to be hurting one of the things that like, really challenged me was if somebody here, a writer said this, if somebody in your church was secretly struggling with gender dysphoria or homosexual tendencies, same-sex attraction, those kind of things, if they secretly were struggling with that and they just walked around and lived in, did life in your church, how would they hear your church talk about it? Would they hear your church talk about it in a way that made them feel like they could go and like talk to somebody about it? Or would they say, heck no, it's not worth the risk, right? Like that is where the, the big C, the, the, the standing in truth church, not just Puyallup Community Baptist, but that's where churches in general have really dropped the ball. And as a pastor, I have to do better. It changes, starts into in my heart, my attitude, to say there are like people who are really hurting. And so I would plead with you today, if you are here and that's you or someone you know is struggling, With same-sex attraction gender dysphoria any of those types of things like I know it's become cliche but I'll use it like I see you like I know that you're there I might not know exactly who you are but I know that it's out there I acknowledge that it's out there and I acknowledge that the church has not been the place where people could come and could really share those things and that's not okay that the church should be the place where people can come with those things and really open up and really be able to have those questions. And so in some ways as a church, that's something that we have to repent of. And I'm not, again, just talking about PCBC, I'm about the church in general. Like if that's you and that's someone you know, like I want you to talk to me, I want you to talk to Pastor Lauren. Uh, We've got a couple ladies here, Sue, Susie Bookman, who are both like, counselors who can walk through these things with you from a biblical perspective and provide some help because the church should be that place amen so each week we put a sermon we're calling it a sermon supplement it's just some just different questions that you can use and it's some resources that you can use and things like that on the website you can go there and you can find that there are two really good resources that help me in this a lot one's a book and one's a, a a an article. They're both there plus lots of other things, but I don't do this often. I want to show you one resource that I, I feel like all Christians should read on this topic. It's called God and the Transgender Debate by Andrew Walker. It's been immensely helpful to me. If you've got kids who are wondering about this, and they are, you should read this because he's got chapters in there on ta- how do you talk to your kids. If you've ever come up with, come up against the the use of the the pronoun thing, like do I Use preferred pronouns with my coworkers. He actually has a whole appendix that talks about that. This is a very accessible book that anyone could read. I told my daughters, like, I could have them read it. But he's very balanced. He's very biblical. He talks about worldview issues. Very balanced, and at the same time, like, very strong and and theological. So I would commend that book to any of you. This, what I'm talking about today, scratches the surface. That gets you a long way down the road.